Welcome to the Spirit Restored Podcast. This is where the curiosities of spiritualism meet the belief systems of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This podcast is only for those with an open mind. Join Ken Adams on his quest to find higher planes of spiritual experience. Restored Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Zimmerman out of Boise, Idaho. Dr. Zimmerman is a unique doctor that deals with patients that have had concussions, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and he uses ketamine, which is a mushroom to help them alleviate their their problems, right? To help them find healing finally in their life. Dr. Zimmerman, would you tell us a little bit more about you, about who you are, what you like to do, and how you got into the business you're doing? Yeah. So just a quick correction. Um, ketamine's a medication versus a mushroom. So whereas psilocybin is going to be a mushroom, ketamine's a synthetic medication that's used that can have similar responses. But my background started really working with a lot of patients with traumatic brain injuries, concussions, strokes, you know, and in that population, you get a lot of individuals suffering with depression, PTSD, and anxiety. Um, we specifically worked with a lot of special forces, military veterans who, you know, some of them were doing really well. And then you had others who all it took was a, the wrong conversation, seeing the wrong thing. And all of a sudden, a lot of their symptoms were coming back and it was failing them. And so I had to shift from just being, you know, this brain guy where it's like, hey, you got to rehab the brain to, well, what would sabotage the ability of the brain to be healthy? So, like what's happening with your blood work, like your hormones and your liver. But then at the end, that still wasn't sufficient. And for me, completing the picture was what I call mind, which is just more of like your stress response, your subconscious programming that people have, as well as some of their conscious traumas. And it wasn't until I got to that part that I really started to being able to help this population that before I was unable to. So what does what does ketamine do to the patient? What are the effects like? What do they experience when they're on this medication? So ketamine's very much dose dependent. Um, so at for example, higher doses, it's used in anesthesia as part of surgery. But at very low doses, it more of just has a calming effect if it's given really low. Now at the dose that we're using for most of the depression, PTSD, and anxiety, you can get into a state that's more, you know, relaxed. You can also have times where you're going back into your memory banks and you'll see things from your childhood. Maybe you were three, four or five um, and have things like that occur. So it's, it can have a psychedelic effect. Is that what you're talking about? Correct. Yes. It can have a psychedelic effect at what we call sub anesthetic doses. So it's not enough to put you in anesthesia, but it is enough to, bring you to that psychedelic state. Interesting. Yeah. My first experience learning about ketamine was actually with my mom. She's a marriage and family therapist and she'll get people talking to her, uh, looking for solutions, right? Obviously for PTSD, usually for her, she's helping patients with PTSD. She's helping former firemen, former police officers or current firemen and police officers or military that come to her with these kind of symptoms and problems. And uh, I grew up, and to give you background, right, and everybody else background, I've grown up as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or known as Mormons, right? And something very unique and interesting about Mormons is that they have this code of ethics around health. It's called the Word of Wisdom is what it is. And within this Word of Wisdom, the church requires their members to live this standard if they want to enter a Mormon temple. Yeah. And, and you're in Boise, Idaho. So you've probably driven by the temple there on the freeway. And, uh, so it's important for them to live the standard. One of those standards is to avoid drugs. Yeah. To also avoid alcohol, avoid cigarettes, to not drink coffee, to avoid black tea, green tea, um, eat meat sparingly is another thing. Um, but that's not necessary. I would feel like that's probably not the one people follow so well. It won't keep them out of the temple, that one apparently. So <clears throat> having that background, right? I had, my mom and I 
we're, we are exploring this concept of psychedelics and healing and finding your identity and finding out who you are. And uh, I had an interview with someone that was taking psilocybin for spiritual reasons and spiritual practice. And within that conversation, you know, we, we got down to the more spiritual aspects of doing that. And my mom was listening to it and she's like, you know, I don't know how I feel about psychedelics because I've had a patient come to me who then went and did ketamine and had all these awesome results. And she's like, I don't know where I stand on it. Right. Because on the one hand, it's like, should I, should we be taking drugs? And on the other hand, it's like, look at the healing. So for you, Dr. Zimmerman, if someone comes to you, you know, you live in Boise, I'm sure this happens. And they're of the LDS faith, they're Mormon. Yeah. And they say, is this a psychedelic? What should I really be taking this? What, how do you respond to that? Yeah. I try to get them not to see it as a true psychedelic because there's, it really goes to kind of the belief you have in your mind about what something is. So when people hear about psychedelics, especially now with them becoming so readily available in states like Oregon and other things, we can basically just go and buy it and go and use it whenever you want. They're thinking about it in two different contexts. It's like, oh, well, you know, people just do psychedelics to go on a trip because they're trying to avoid their current reality. And then on the other side, it's, well, what if you do something that has a psychedelic effect, but it's done in a very medical like facility that isn't meant to get you out of your current reality. It's meant to help you heal so you can exist in your current reality at a better state. Fascinating. So it, I bring this up because someone could be Mormon or of the LDS faith, and they, they're going to go to someone called a bishop who runs like a congregation and determines their worthiness, right, to enter a temple. Yeah. And sometimes they go there and they've spoken to a doctor. Let's say it's like you or another doctor. Yeah. Sometimes doctors say, I want to like prescribe you to cannabis or I want to prescribe you to ketamine or opiates, right? I mean, there's oxycodone and all kinds of other opiates that are medically prescribed, right? And they could feel a little conflict going there and be like, am I really okay, like moving forward in my standing with God if I'm also taking these prescriptions that are not in line with what I said, I would live my life. Like, how do you view that perspective? Like, how do you help someone be like, okay, listen, like, let me help you understand this. What do you do? I like bringing it back to just more of a simple level because it gets convoluted when they're like, oh, well, this is ketamine. It's psychedelic. It's like most things in life are meant to alter your thought processes, right? All TV networks, all news media outlets, the foods you eat, you know, they pay scientists tons of money to make them super addictive to you. So you want to go back. And even if you look at medications that people take all the time for depression and anxiety, for example, Lexapro or Escitalopram, when you look at that, that universally hurts people's ability to have emotions. They're like, well, I'm not as depressed, but I, they also can't feel joy their um, ability to cry goes down as well. And that is something they're on their entire life. And so it's like, you know, what's the trade-off here? Is it, do you really want to be stuck for your entire life and have to take a medication? Or what if you could do a medication underneath supervision, six to eight sessions and be good for the next year or two years? That's awesome. So so when you when you have people that come to you, right, they're they're looking for that solution that's more long term, right? And you talk about mm -hmm. things like Lexapro, right? It's like changes how you view emotions. So when you when you have patients come to you with ketamine, right? Tell me kind of the process that happens and what results they start getting as they go through the process. Let's say someone comes to you with PTSD, for example. Yeah, when someone comes to me with PTSD. First, I start really educating them on how I view trauma. So I view trauma from there's a conscious level. So these are all the traumas that you're aware of. And then you have your subconscious trauma. That's the trauma that your brain is hidden from you in an effort to keep you safe. So there's usually trauma that people have completely forgotten about. Now, where this 
gets challenging. My average patient's done about 20 years of counseling and still wasn't getting better. And it's because with counseling, you are going to counsel on what you consciously remember. And just because you consciously remember it doesn't mean it's actually the biggest roadblock that you're dealing with. Mm. And then I'm also going to set you up for success. So there's a lot of layers to this, but the basics really come down to this. Um, you know, have you heard about like the rule of five, right? Like the five people you spend the most time with is going to dictate your income. Well, I do the same thing for people's health. I'm like, you need to write down who are the five individuals that get your most time and energy. And then you have to rate them as positive or negative. If your 80% of time and energy is not given to positive people, you know what? You probably won't get the lasting results you'd like out of Ketamine. The other thing is also I have you write down what are the three things you do that bring you joy and how often do you do it? Ketamine is a signaling molecule that tells the brain we need to connect differently. But if you've been dealing with depression or PTSD for 30 to 40 years, ketamine jumpstarts that process, but it doesn't lock it 100% in a place. It's your environment and the things you do determines how long that lasts. And so I don't want people to view ketamine like, yes, you know, many people consider it a miracle drug, but it shouldn't be done in and of itself. It is very much influenced by the environment that you are in and you surround yourself with. Fascinating. Yeah. I, I like that thinking about health, right? Like who are the five people around you and what, what's their health like and what do they do? Because it's true. I think us being human social beings, right? It's like, we just model the people around it. And I think about my family, right? I've, I'm someone that cares about my health and fitness. I care about being in good shape. I'd gotten overweight and I lost a bunch of weight because I wanted to be back in shape. And I noticed that when I go hang out with my family, my family likes to eat. They love good food. They like pie. They like all this kind of stuff. I'll go there and all of a sudden I'm just like munching away. I'm like, whoa, what happened to my brain, right? <laughs> it's like all anchored to good food and all these experiences and all that. And, and you're probably looking, you know, at the mental health aspect, right? Like who are the people you surround with mentally, right? It's like, and what do they talk about? What do they say? What do they do? Do, do they feel uncomfortable about that idea sometimes? Cause I'm sure it's family members. I'm sure it's like, how do you help them move forward and create that environment? Yeah, no, they definitely do have times where it is family members. And that's where sometimes people have to make hard decisions. You know, it's like, okay, they're trying to treat you the way they've always treated you. So you've got to set firm boundaries with your family members, right? Like, like maybe you were the youngest in the family. And every time you go to a family outing, you're going to still be treated like the, the baby, even though you're a 40 year old, guess what? That's trauma. And sometimes you have to do something hard, which is being like family that happens. I'm out. And I've got some patients that completely have to tell their family, look, I'm gone. Like you can reach out to me when you're in a better spot because I don't need your trauma to get to your best life, especially when you start having kids, right? When you start having kids, you owe it to your kids to be the best you which sometimes can mean letting go of your own siblings that are weighing you down. And people will often think like, well, but it's my family. I'm like, does it matter who's punching you in the face? I don't care if it's a family, a friend, or someone that is just walking down the street and they deck you at the end of the day, you're being punched in the face and you can't allow that. If you ever want to be where you're at, you know, in psychiatry and in counselors, you know, there's something they use all the time. It's, it's an ACE score. It's adverse childhood experiences or events where it's like, was there abuse in the home? Was there alcohol in the home? Was there extreme poverty? Did your parents go through divorce and many other things? And we know those scores, even if it happened when you were four or five, significantly correlates not only with depression in your twenties and thirties, but with obesity, with cholesterol levels with blood sugar issues with blood pressure heart disease and so many other things and so you've really got to view it from a much 
bigger angle. And in, you know, I'm kind of wrap it back. I've, you know, on the extreme side, I've actually had patients who divorced their spouse because they realized they were their trauma. Um, and this is one of the things that happens in the trauma circles is when you grow up in trauma, you will tend to attract trauma into your life. And so how many of you know someone where they go through divorce and then they get into another bad relationship and another bad relationship? And they're like, you know, it's, normally it's the females that come and get help at a higher rate than the males. And they're like, I always seem to attract the same guys in my life. And it's like, yeah, because subconsciously you still have never healed from your trauma and, and it almost like completes you. And so we've got to change it. So they no longer complete you. Fascinating. Yeah. I, I mean, I see that all the time. I've had people I've worked with that have had generational trauma. Yeah. Like around food or around family members or things like that. Right. And it's like passed down, you know, it's just living in the subconscious. Yeah. Even though they may not have experienced it as a child necessarily, but the language and the, the way that their parents lived who had experienced it as a child passes down the same behaviors or the same, you might say the container of the environment is still the same going down. Yeah. And, and I wanted to ask this about ketamine also getting into this. I know we're also talking about holistically, right? How healing happens holistically. And and we will talk about that more. I wanted to know how did, like, how did ketamine get started? Like what was, who created ketamine, right? Cause it's synthetic, right? How did they know to make it? What it, what was the inspiration for the medication? So ketamine has been around for decades. It was actually a derivative of PCP, um, but it's much less potent. And, you know, they've used it in surgeries for a long time. And from my understanding is they were using it in a model to try to disprove something. And in that research, they stumbled upon when given at lower doses, it had remarkable antidepressive benefits. And they're like, wait, we weren't even studying it for that. And so it was kind of an accident um, that they found it. And now pretty much every single week or two, I'm getting emails from these medical journals. It's here's another study on ketamine. You know, it was ketamine and depression is where it started off. And then it was PTSD and it was anxiety. And you're just like, you know what, these results are pretty phenomenal. And in the things that we look at that are legal in every state, they would say the only thing that beats ketamine, which I disagree if you really find the right fit for ketamine, is electroconvulsive therapy. So who wants to sign up for that to have like a 1% better chance? Is that um, is that like electric shock therapy? Yes. Really? I didn't know electric thought shock therapy was still in use or, or useful. Yes. I've had patients that have had it done. You know, it's one of those things that comes with a lot of baggage. Um, I don't know why we're still doing it. We've got better therapies. We've got, you know, once again, ketamine, we have transcranial magnetic simulation. Um, we have comboing lower dose ketamine with like hypnosis and counseling, which can bring results that those on their own can't do when you start layering these therapies together in a very synergistic way. Fascinating. The So electroshock therapy, there's some of that in my family. It's actually kind of like a, I could say possibly a trauma that happened because my, my grandma, who um, was a convert to the LDS faith, her siblings were upset about it and took her to a doctor and they gave her electroshock therapy for joining the religion. Is what it was. And it was, yeah, it's kind of a fascinating thing in my own family, right? Because it's like, why was that necessary in that moment, right? Like, what were they trying to solve? You know, so I, I had never heard that it was actually had some benefits medically and that it was still somewhat in use. That, that's really shocking, you might say to me. And uh, I want to know more about your patients, some stories you've had with your patients. Yeah. I mean, don't use their names or anything. Right. And what are, what are some of the things that have happened when you've interacted with patients, something they've come to you with and, and the results that you've seen with them? Yeah. You know, I've been doing this for about four years with individuals with 
you know, with depression, PTSD and anxiety, you know, I, I can go back to even whenever I first started, I had someone who is, you know, upper fifties in their low sixties who had never experienced joy their entire life. Um, literally, you know, ducking in and out of family dinners, family outings, just not filling up to it. And then after six ketamine sessions, you know, was back doing everything, wasn't avoiding it and was experiencing joy for the first time in a long time because we almost consider these things like, oh, well, you have, you know, in some circles, like, well, you're just depressed because, you know, you just need to change your mind on this. You just got to change the way you view stuff versus no, this is actually circuitry in the brain that can become very fixed and we have to change that circuitry. And so sometimes you can do it by listening to self-help and other things, but other times you need something stronger. Um, so that's one side, but then I'll even share something for my wife where, you know, she grew up in a family, you know, parents never divorced, no abuse, no fights, no alcohol in the home, you know, nothing like that. But even when she did it, she was like, I don't think I have any traumas. She went, you know, she goes back to these events when she's like four and she's like, that was traumatic to me. She's like, I had no clue that created trauma. And, and then this stuff happened. And now she's started having explanations of why she behaves certain ways in social circles, why she, you know, acts the way she does. And she's like, whoa. And, and that kind of brings us to that subconscious level of trauma. And one of the things I frequently remind individuals of is you'll look at that and, and hear about some of the trauma and you're like, that's stupid. Like, how is that giving you trauma? And it's like, well, that's you saying that as a 40 year old about a four year old, none of us would ever say kids are rational human beings. So why would do we expect a hundred percent of all trauma to be rationally based? You know, totally. Yeah. I've so in, in the profession that I do, I train people in neurolinguistic programming, hypnosis and timeline therapy and timeline therapy is similar, right? They, they go back and they learn from their past and they move on. And sometimes it's ridiculous, right? I mean, it's like some, their brother stole their block and then they got punched too. And then they're like, man, I guess I don't have standing in my social circles. So I should shy away from confronting people and things. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm interested too, in how you define trauma, because growing up the way that I understood like PTSD and trauma was like someone went to war, lost a limb, saw a bunch of people get killed, or, um, there was extreme abuse in a home or someone was part of a murder or witnessed it. Yeah. And I was like, and I, I feel like now like trauma is a little bit more expansive in definition than what I w was used to hearing growing up. I feel like just about everyone could have some kind of trauma. I want to know, like, what's your definition for that? For me, trauma is almost anything that has happened in your life that holds you back from reaching your maximum or optimal potential. Interesting. You know, this could go to sports. This could go to anything where, you know, hey, you could have a great athlete, but if they have the wrong coach who keeps holding them back too much and that becomes entrained in their mind that they shouldn't try something, now they can't become the athlete they had the potential to be because they've been traumatized by that coach. And so you're right, trauma's on this scale, but everyone associates, like you said, it, it's oh, I was in the military. I saw my buddy die. I saw this happen, or I was beat up in my childhood by my parents, or I was sexually abused. But it doesn't have to be to that level to have a negative outcome on where you want to be. And one of the other things that I see here in Idaho, and I believe it exists everywhere, I even call it religious PTSD. I think people get trauma from religions or really any social group you belong to could be traumatic if it prevents you from reaching your potential. Okay. I want to dive into that specifically. Yeah. 
So what what are some of these religious PTSDs that you've come across? So the religious PTSD is, I see it when individuals are trying to live up to an expectation that they themselves don't believe is possible, but it just weighs on them 24 seven. And they don't even know what it means to be true to themselves because they're, they're living up to someone else's expectations. And so while they appear good on the outside, everyone's like, Oh, well, look at so-and-so they are miserable in the inside. They're depressed. They're anxious. And they're just going through life, but they don't even feel they have a purpose. So what are some of the experiences? Perhaps you've had some patients go back in the past in their mind while on ketamine. What are some of these experiences that created this religious trauma? So a lot of it, you know, especially with some of the LDS people I've had is, you know, in the past, there was a really big patriarchal hierarchy, like, okay, whatever the priesthood holder says you must do. And for a lot of the female patients, there's a ton of trauma surrounding that, especially for those in like their forties, fifties, and sixties, because you had some, depending on how strictly they adhered to certain principles. I mean, they could have something going on and try to tell their bishop or anyone else. And they're like, no, just tell your husband. And they're like, Yes, but that's part of the problem here is they just say, nope, I've got the priesthood and you've got to just listen to me. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. And and you have, you mentioned you have mostly payment, uh, patients that are female, right? That come to you because men ask for help less is what you're saying too, right? What What is uh, on the male side? What have you noticed with that religious trauma? So the male side, it's, haven't noticed it as much, um, but there's, it's still really just more of the expectation, especially in those that are the more well-known families, you know, if they're trying to live up to like, Oh, well, my dad was a leader or my grandpa was a leader that can be really hard for them, especially if they slip up, right? Cause if they slip up, then they get beat up by a pretty big group. And then that creates trauma for them. And some of them, you know, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to turn away or they just start lying. You know, it's like, oh, well, do you believe in, and you, they start answering questions in a way to please someone versus in a way that's true to themselves. So they're almost living like two lives. For example, like you mentioned at the earlier part about being able to go to the temple. It's like, well, do you truly believe well, I'm going to say yes, because I actually don't want you to question me further. I'm in a discovery state. Yeah. Yeah. This, you know, this is absolutely true what you're saying. I mean, I've, I work with people like this. I talk to people like this all the time. And for me, I went through my own journey to understand this because growing up, I mean, I'll share some of my own experiences. There's these interviews, right? They ask you if you're worthy, if you're living correctly, if you're living all these standards. And being like a 14 year old kid, like figuring out life and not living up to those expectations, which are really high, right? And then having these conversations with a grown adult, right? About this over and over was challenging. I mean, I remember feeling so much like fear going into that, like just immense fear. Yeah. And that for a kid, I think is pretty intense. And I've seen people, you know, I myself, right, not knowing how to feel joy because of this looming expectation that was there in my mind, right? And and for me, it was like, I had to step back and think, like, would the God that I follow and worship want me to be feeling this way? Like, would I do that? And now, like, you know, I made a decision for me. It was worthy. Like, an interview doesn't determine my worth, right? It's like, my worth is what I decide it is and what God decides it is between us, right? It's a personal matter, (laughs) you know, it's like, and it's immeasurable is the other thing. It's like, it's infinite and immeasurable. And if I truly know God, then he is love, right? And regardless of who I am and whatever my circumstances, he loves me unconditionally and completely, right? So I can go on and live my life joyfully however I want and allow myself to learn rather than put myself in a cage, 
and say, I need to believe this or do this or live this way in order to have standing, right? Is is that similar to what you're talking about? Yeah, it's very much similar, you know, especially about standing, you know, and, and different callings that people can get in the church. You know, I've even had people who worked for the church that had trauma from their, you know, their supervisors on like the temple cleaning grounds. And then after that person did ketamine, they're like, you know what? The way they were treating me is because they've got so much trauma too. And that was one of their, that was a fascinating experience they had because they were like, during the session, they like viewed themselves, but then they realized everyone else, everyone's just kind of living in their own little dimension. And we often take things that are done to us as if like it was, everything is so intentionally done to us instead of people just trying to figure out their own mortality and their own lives. And sometimes you really are just an innocent bystander that intersected with them at the wrong time. It's they don't actually have any hostility towards you, but they also have interacted with other people in the past that have shaped where they're at too. Yeah, I think uh, what you highlighted something really important that's part of that healing process is uh, I had a moment where I just felt angry, right? It was a brief moment. It wasn't very long. It was probably like 15 minutes is all it was. And I just felt all this anger that I had like closed off for a long time, right? Because I'm like, what, what was what was this bishop telling me to do as a kid to help me overcome my problem? When I look at it now and I'm like, that is like the least helpful thing. Like there's nothing helpful about that. Like the, it, and me knowing what I know about what the subconscious does, how it functions, how it creates results, how you actually create change at a subconscious level is like, there's nothing that's helpful about that. It's not, it's not that he was intentionally harming or wanting to harm like that. That wasn't my scenario at all. Um, some people have that scenario, unfortunately. For me, it wasn't. I usually had good people with good intentions helping me, but they just didn't know how, right? And I started to feel this anger, right? It was just like this intense anger that was angry at that person, angry at that person, and that person, that person. And then it came to like what you said, right? Is being like, okay, like they grew up not understanding. You know, it's like they grew up with their own own experiences, their own life, their own choices and the, their own things. And then I was able to step back and be like, they're just doing the best they could with what they knew and what they have. Right. I can let them, let them be who they are and let them go. And the ironic thing for me, I mean, at least in my situation, I think anybody listening to this can decide how, you know, if you're in this situation, how you want to move forward. Right. For me, it was like, I began to find God, right. Because I was starting to let go of the labels that are found in religion, like worthiness, right? Are you worthy? I'm like, I don't care anymore. I'm like, you can ask me that. I, it doesn't matter, right? It's like, I'm, I'm me. I'm just me. Like, who cares? I'm alive. If, if I weren't here tomorrow, you, you wouldn't care about my worthiness. You'd just be caring if I was, if I could still be here, right? Like, there's, there's no issue there, yeah. All these things like, um, I mean, even priesthood holder is a label, right? And I would say that's a label that, you know, I don't, I don't really care to be labeled as that or define my identity as that. The only thing that I've discovered now for myself is that I, I am, I feel as equal as a creation of God to anything else. Yeah. And I can allow myself to be that creation without being tied up in labels. So now for me, you know, I go to church, but I don't define myself by labels. I don't allow anybody to dictate my life and how I want to live. And I view religious gathering as my community where I can also, if I notice people are living in these labels, I can help them think outside of it and actually find connection with God. Because ultimately in my own experience, right? When I, I've, it's a duality here, right? It's like, there's that connection with the church, with religion that tells you how to live and how to be and how to act, right? And then there's the other duality, which is I am seeking God within that religion, yeah? And then I find God, perhaps despite some of these beliefs or because of some of other, other beliefs, yeah? And I find God and then God teaches me who I am and how to live, right? 
And the thing is, I learned that all those other things are just completely unnecessary, right? It's like, you know, I look at the Bible. I don't know if you're Christian or you read the Bible. Um, Jesus says the three great commandments. He says, love God, love your neighbor, love yourself, right? And I'm like, well, that makes sense. Like, that's something I can follow. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, that's all that really matters to me. So what what are some of the results you've seen? People that grew up in this religious environment. Yeah, LDS. And what are some of the decisions they've made or how they've decided to move forward after getting treatment from you? And what may have been some of the experiences they had that led up to that decision? Yeah. So before I go into that, I I just want to hit on something that you had just talked about is I think a lot of it comes down to this conflict of what's happening inside us versus what we're trying to portray to the world and aligning that to be true to ourselves. Right. So you said like, love yourself but you can't love yourself if you've got this internal external conflict where you're trying to live up to different standards. Um, Now, one of the interesting things about ketamine is I believe it helps someone become a better individual and it lets them become free. Now, one of the, it's really split. So about 50% of religious people, when they come in and I mentioned ketamine as a way to help them, like, oh man, I don't know. I don't want anything that could alter me. And then the others are like, honestly, I just want to get better. I'm, I'm miserable. I'm not happy. And when we live our lives in conflict and we're trying to live to these ideals where we're like, I don't want anything to alter me. Well, you wouldn't be here if you were happy with how you truly were. And when you live your life in a way that's not congruent and you're trying to maintain control, you actually never have control. Because you, you're, it's like being in this environment that's slowly closing in on you and you're in chains. And yeah, you may be in control, but you have nowhere near the control you thought you did. Um, and then the other thing is people believe, like if they have a good experience with ketamine, it's going to negatively influence their ability to believe in God or to belong to a religion. Um I've actually rarely had someone who's left their church over ketamine. And I get people of all different faiths, LDS, Catholic, you know, born again, Methodist, all of those. And universally, what I'm seeing is after ketamine, they believe there's, they gain a better understanding of themselves and they actually have a better love towards God than they did in the past. So I actually had a family friend that, you know, very tragic death of their kid, like super tragic, you know, was going to get married, everything and didn't have really a purpose in life. And then with ketamine, they actually went back to seeing themselves in the womb and they finally gained a purpose. I mean, this is someone who every time you had a conversation with them, they're like, I just want to die. I just want to die. They, they would never take their own lives. You know, that's not the type of person they are. But if they would have been hit by a bus, they would have been like, thank you, God, for finally watching out for me and doing something for me. Like, that's how happy they would have been. But then after ketamine, they realized like, you know what? There's more to this. And it got them to a spot, you know, it took us a couple of years. And this with me knowing them, you know, being really good friends. But it took me about two years to finally be able to get them to ketamine where they could start healing and creating their own self-worth. Because for me, I believe we've got to become complete on our, we've got to be complete individuals on our own. So often we're looking for a religion. We're looking for friends. We're trying to do a career that we believe is going to complete us. But it's like, no, that's not what you want to bring to a marriage where you're an incomplete person marrying another incomplete person. You know, if if you watch sports, right, let's use football as an example. A quarterback and wide receiver should be on the exact same page, but the roles are different. And they need to be like, okay, you know what? Boom, you see a break, I'm going to hit you. And really be on that same wavelength. They don't need the other person, though. Like, the quarterback's not like, hey, wide receiver, can you help me with my aim a little bit? Can you help me get an extra five yards on this pass? No, that's not my job, but 
if we're both complete, we can do something that's really, really special. And it's like, you, you need to do that because then when you do it, you're in congruence with yourself. You do feel complete. So now any religion that my patients belong to, they now can execute and function it in a way that they should be able to. And they get to leave behind all of the cultural baggage that belongs with a lot of religions, you know, like, let's face it, the LDS church, you know, I grew up in the LDS church. I, I no longer go, but there's a lot of cultural baggage where it's like, oh, you're LDS. Like these are automatically your expectations. And most of them actually have nothing to do with the doctrine of the church. They're just expectations that have been passed down, you know, and it's just like, well, actually this is just kind of a policy. It's just, you know, it's what we thought was important. And, and then depending on the pocket you live in, in the world or in the United States, you know, even then this cultural norms of the LDS society is different from one part to the other. And so it's like, no, you know what? People are able to separate that better with ketamine. And they're like, no, I can actually go now and not leave frustrated. Cause there's a lot of people that go to, you know, relief society priesthood and they're leaving frustrated because of what someone else says, because everyone's kind of got their own interpretation. They're all kind of going the same place, but like where I believe you are, you've, you've stepped back and you've realized like, you know what, we're all getting there. We're all tripping along the way, but we've got to pull out the judgment of everyone's journey. And, and ketamine for a lot of my patients, it really allows them to get to that spot because when they have those deeper experiences, they, they're like, wow, this is where the trauma is. And only when you yourself have healed from your traumas, are you even aware of how your actions are interacting with other people? And that's where it goes back to what you said about like, the bishops, right? Most of the bishops, they're not trying to do bad things. They just don't know any better. And a lot of them have their own trauma too. Yeah. Wow. I really like what you said. And I didn't know you had an LDS background this whole time. So I'm glad I know that now, right? (laughs) You understand. So um, for for me, I'm going to share a thought. Yeah. That after reflecting on this, it's kind of fun to laugh at. Yeah. And and I don't know if anybody else has ever experienced this that's listening to this. I worked for the church. Yeah. And you mentioned people that work for the church. Yeah. And I remember I made this decision. First of all, my dad worked for the church. He was a seminary teacher in Boise, Idaho for a while. And I don't know if you ever went to seminary in Boise, Idaho. Possible you could have run across him. And uh, he he worked for the church for a while. Then I thought, you know, like I want to make sure that I go back and live with God, right? Because it's this concept, you got to be worthy, live a worthy life so that then you can return back to God and live with him, right? Which presupposes that you're not already allowed to live with God right now, right? Because by the way, God doesn't live in time or space, in my opinion, right? Otherwise he wouldn't be God, yeah? So if he doesn't, then he should be able to be here now at any time, right? Because he's expansive and, and can be anywhere. And uh, here's the thought I had. It was almost like I was competing against myself. Yeah. And the thought was this. I want to work for the church because they require me to have a temple recommend. So that when when I think of trying to do anything wrong, it's associated with how much money I'm being paid. So that if I mess up, then it's like losing my job. Yeah. So now it's like a compound of losing your job, your employment, versus also losing your standing with God. So it like, there's no ability, like you said, right? If you're competing against yourself, then there's no ability to really live joyfully, right? Because it's like, you're in a competition. There's a fight on the inside. It's like, hey, part of me thinks I'm good. Part of me thinks I'm evil, right? And it's like, how do I keep the evil part in check? Well, I'm going to play chess, right? It's like going to get a job where I have to be good. You know, I don't know if you've ever had patients express that thought before, but it it it's kind of fun to look back and laugh at it, right? Because it's it's saying basically I don't have self control. <laughs> yep. You know, 
So what are, what are some of the things as you've worked with these patients, right? That are huge releases for them in this situation, things that they, they move forward. And what are some of the results of moving forward for them? Yeah. So one of the things I do, you know, is I, I do all sorts of questionnaires like depression, anxiety, PTSD scores, and we're routinely seeing drops from like moderate, severe, severe to mild or non in two to three weeks. But then they're maintaining it for three months, six months, you know, and some of them much longer than that, depending on how they're interacting in their life. But for some people, right, I've said some people need to separate from their families. But I've had others where because they've started healing from their trauma, they're able to now go back and engage in their families because they realize like, hey, my parents are doing this because that's just who they are but it no longer has to traumatize me in the way it did when I was five years old or 10 years old. Um, so it's actually brought back, you know, an ability to start having some sort of relationship that wasn't there. And I, and I think I, that goes back to what you were saying about, well, if you did it, it would hold you to a different accountability because of that, but then it's not being congruent to yourself. And so we often think, well, but if I separate from my family, I'm separating. It's like, well, yeah, but what if you're already separated because every time you go, you have trauma anyways, like, is that, that that's not where you should be. You know, there's interest of being in the same vehicle and truly wanting the same destination. And, and, and that work, you know, once again, that I see with ketamine routinely, is it, it brings people together. It, it brings you know, marriages together, I'll often tell people, look, if you've been through a bad divorce, I believe that's one of the best times to get ketamine because you've got baggage that you need to shed to bring that you don't want to bring with you to a new relationship. And it's the same thing if people leave one church and go to another or even right. Like people will move and they're like, Hey, you know what? I want a fresh start in church. You know, I'm still going to go to the same church, but I just need a fresh city where people aren't trying to define me based on who I was in my past. That's why a lot of people move from where they grew up because it's like, Hey, you know, you're still 15 year old you. It's like, but I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, 50 years old now or whatever age you are. And it's like, I've changed. I'm trying to be a new place. And I think that's also one of the places that, I see within the religious PTSD is even when people try to change, they keep, they often feel like they're being judged harshly off of their past. And, and, and possibly being judged for changing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, it's fascinating, you know, it's like someone makes a change in their life. I mean, if I've had family members or friends or things like that, that, they step away from the church, right? And then it's like, some people could be like, well, you're missing out or what about your soul or all those kind of things, right? It's like, and, and my response is it's their journey, right? Let them figure this out for them, right? If if the church is something they wanna go back to, they'll find it again. If they don't, they don't. Let, let them go figure it out in their mind what they wanna go do. And I feel like there's kind of like this duality culture where it's like, Either you stay in the church and you stay religious or you become ex-Mormon and you hate the church, right? And it's like, why? Why does that have to exist? Why can't we just focus? On, I mean, if someone's truly moved on from what are all that trauma, right? Which is what we're talking about. If someone's moved on from the trauma, then neither of those will matter because they'll just say, I'm living my life, right? And however this or that fits into my life is how it'll fit into it if I choose to to fit in right? Like for me, it was like, I don't really care what happened in church history or anything in my past now, right? It's like, it's gone. It's what happened, happened. What I look at now is my future. And I say, well, how am I moving forward? What decisions do I want to make now? What strategies am I making in my life to get what I want, right? Because if, if I'm focused on what I want, if I'm focused on having joy, if I'm focused on having closer connection to my own inner greatness, right? Then that changes the picture. Yeah. That changes who you listen to. That changes how you go about things. And it's no longer a fight against myself. I actually now have 
a loving relationship with that part of me that wants to do evil, right? And and we have conversations, you might say, until we get to agreement, right? We have shared experiences until we get to agreement. And then from there, we move on, right? And I, I feel like a lot of what you're doing is helping people with that. I feel like coming away from this conversation, right, is like, wow, Dr. Zimmerman's helping people, right? And And I would say, you know, this is a medication, right? Like go to someone that can help you. I've had people that I work with, we usually do it in altered states without medication. We use hypnosis, timeline therapy. I just did a training all last week, eight hours a day, taking people through these processes and certifying them. And um has a magnificent effect, right? As you as you get into being able to access the, the subconscious part of your mind to revisit certain memories, to go to certain locations that you may have forgotten about, right? And to revisit those and learn from it and move on, it has a very powerful effect. And it seems like, a, you know, in, in your practice, that's what's going on, right? They're, they're taking ketamine and they're having experiences that they may have forgotten and they're learning from it. And then are you there to help them process what they're learning? How does that process go? Once they have an experience and they tell you about it, what do you do after that? Yeah. So, you know, we give them the option of having someone be in the room with them or they can just be in there by themselves Um, because a lot of people, especially the ones that have done counseling, you know, they're just burnt out of talking to people. And one of the cool things about ketamine is you don't actually have to talk through it with anyone. Like you'll process it on your own. And so we kind of give them the ability to do either way, but I'll tell them, Hey, after you finish the session, you know, when you don't feel the medication anymore, go and do something that makes you laugh, go and do something that brings you joy. Right. Cause isn't that supposed to be the whole purpose of this life? And I think that's something in the LDS church that gets lost is we're like, well, you're supposed to have joy, but you may have to suffer a lot, but it's okay. Cause after you die and it's like, but if you can't have joy in this life, do you really think you're, if, if you're just a continuance of this life, what is going to change for you that's going to bring you joy in the next life? You know, yeah, it's like very well so, said. <laughs> so how do you get there? Um, but it, it's really about reinforcing that. And it's like, you've got to do things that bring you joy and, and have that session because as you get in the higher doses, you know, a lot of people don't feel like talking. There are some that do, but it is good for them to talk afterwards So while I get a lot of people that have done counseling before, I prefer them to do counseling after ketamine because ketamine has unearthed what they often need to resolve. And there are those that, man, after they finish the ketamine, they can go on for an hour or two. And they're just like, you know, they're just going super fast because they've got all this stuff they didn't realize was holding them back. And, and even if it's, you're just a friend of someone or a family member of someone that has ketamine, just kind of sit there and be like, yeah, you know what? I understand, you know, and just let them go. They're, they're just, they just went through a very big healing process and they don't need you to judge. They don't even need you to critique them at all. They just need to get it out because it feels good because they feel like they're having congruency on their own. And that's the way it is for most of the ketamine sessions. But most people will also have one or two sessions that are hard. I don't want people to forget that where they're like, oh, well, you do ketamine and it's just complete bliss. Um, I relate ketamine to hiking. The most beautiful spots are never at the parking lot. You know, and as you, especially if you know you have trauma, you know, we'll we'll often want to swat it away. We're like, no, like here comes this memory. And you may even get into it with your own clients where they start going to those spots and they're like, Oh, this is not something I want to face. And it's like, but you have to, like you have to, the difference is you're an observer. Now you're not that five-year-old, that 10-year-old, whatever age you were, when that occurred, you're not that person anymore. It doesn't have the power over you. And you've got to face it. And then at that point, you're able to move on. One of the really cool things one of my patients had is they literally felt like they died when they did ketamine, like they felt themselves dying. And then they felt themselves coming back to life 
with just more joy and happiness than they'd ever experienced in their entire life. And it, and that's what all these journeys are about, right? Isn't that, isn't that really what baptism's about is a rebirthing and a shedding of burdens that were on us. Um, the only difference is we've got these subconscious burdens and it's where even I've had people do energy work with people who are on ketamine, you know, to layer those together. You could do hypnosis with it together to bring people to a much further state than either one could do on its own. But it's, it's this rebirthing process of saying, Hey, let's shed this baggage so you can live to your true potential because isn't that from a religious standpoint, isn't that what it's about is trying to become more like God. And ultimately, if you perceive that, what is it like to become like heavenly father? It's to be in a place where you've released baggage and you can move forward with joy. It doesn't mean, and it doesn't mean you don't feel sorrow, right? That was one of the reasons why it took me two years to get my friend to do ketamine following a loss of their kid. They're like, but I don't want to forget them. I was like, you're not going to forget them, but you're going to be able to move forward and live your life in the way they want you to. Because losing a kid sucks, whether they're five months old, 20 years old, whatever it is. But you've got to be able to move forward with life and still have joy and release that baggage that's accumulated on you. Wonderful. Yeah, I've, I'm on the same page. I, I feel like if someone's unable to feel joy or peace or happiness in their life, you know, look for options. Become curious of what's most helpful to you. For me, it was very much like growing up, I, I wanted God to give me that, right? And it was mm -hmm. like, I wouldn't ask for help in any other way right because it was like hey if i'm going to be helped it's going to be through god now my perspective has changed i still believe it's from god right whatever choice i'm making i make it with god right and he's supportive yeah because i mean in my own opinion everything's created by him right so i could go to someone like you and i'm like hey i i need some help with this right can you help me out and god would be pleased with whatever way i'm creating more joy in my life, right? And and I think that people can focus on what true joy is, right? And true happiness and true health, right? And and I've seen other people go abandon God to look for help and not not get to a great place either, you know. And and there that takes your own ability to have a compass, right? Which I think is also the point is to learn to create your own compass. Because when you have your own moral compass, it's independent of what anybody else says, right? It's like, okay, this is what gets me results in my life, right? And for me, a huge value is to be like God, right? It's, I'm not saying that I need to please him. I don't feel that way at all. But how do I be like him? Yeah. How do I access that part of me that is him and let that come into me and be part of my being? And how do I find joy every single day? How do I get the results that I want, right? These are things that people, as they start to become successful, especially in like LDS faith, as people start to become successful, they start asking these questions, right? They're like, it's success no longer to me is, am I living how this person wants me to live? It's okay, like I'm starting a business. How do I create the income and wealth, right? Or I have a family now and a marriage. How do I make my marriage really strong and my bonds with my kids very strong? I have, I'm looking at my health. How do I stay in great shape? How do I love giving myself health all the time, right? These are actual results that people go after when they become success-minded. And it's very easy to be like, how does everything fit in, right? Like how you've grown up and you realize what I'm doing and what I believe and how I'm living doesn't align with actually giving me the results I want. Yeah. And it sounds like to me, that's, that's a lot of, you know, people are coming to you because they finally come to that realization, you know? So I want to thank you. And, and actually I'm going to have you say some final words for this audience, right? You're going to have people here with these religious traumas that you talk about, right? With questions that are trying to find answers. What are some final words you have for them to help them move forward, get unstuck and to live their life with the results they want? 
don't judge yourself, you know, with everything we're, we're judging ourselves so harshly and we're judging ourselves based upon what other people say, you know, because you'll, you'll hear someone in church and they get up and they're like, Oh, and you're like, Whoa, they had those experiences. I must be a bad person because I don't have that. And, and it's realizing that each person is on their own journey and there's universal principles of that create success in business that can create success in health that create joy and ketamine is just another layer of getting there um it helps people to get out of their own way to remove the traumas that have accumulated over time both that they're aware of and they're not aware of and for you know for us we're seeing about 90 percent of people it's it's a life-changing thing for them but it's not as but you've got to be willing to let go only by letting go do you truly become free if you always try to be in control you often will not act and you're rarely find someone that always tries to be in control and is truly happy you probably won't find anyone that actually does that who's happy and so you let go you navigate the life and you'll find out whether it's in religion or anything else, you're drawing closer to where you want to be. You're drawing closer to God. Um, and, and it's like you said, it's so often, especially when we're early on, we're almost like so dependent. It's like, Hey, I want to do this prayer. Okay. I think I got an answer. And it's often us telling ourselves what we want it to be um, versus having the clarity of thought and the lack of burdens on us to do things that fits with who we already are. Because for me, it's right. If, if you go back to the LDS faith, right. It's like, okay, well you started off as a spirit being that then came to this life and it's perceived to be a continuation of who you already were. You're not trying to discover you're not trying to become something new. You're trying to release who you already are. But in this life, we have so many burdens, so much baggage, so much trauma heaped upon us from family to religion to the news media. I mean, you know, and the list can go on and on that's meant to prevent us from becoming who we are meant to be. And so I used to tell people, um, you know, you can only give to others what you yourself possess or have, but I've changed it to, you can only give to others what you yourself realize your potential truly is, but you have to unearth your potential. And in what I found in the majority of people, or actually in everyone, if they're willing to get to this state is your potential is so much greater than you truly realize, but you've got to step out of your comfort zone to truly get there. And if you do that, you can live a life of so much more meaning and fulfillment of not only being true to yourself, but as you're true to yourself, now you're a better parent. You're a better sibling. You're a better friend. And everything goes together in life in a way that you wish you would have had it 20, 30, 40 years sooner. Wow, Dr. Zimmer, Zimmerman, thank you. How could someone reach out to you if they, they want to talk to you more about this? So the, the, easiest, best way? the easiest way to reach out to me would be to visit my clinic's website, idahobrainandbody.com. And from there, you can request a consultation. And I, you know, I bring you through the process of Hey, do I think you'd be a good fit? Are there other things, you know, cause I'll tell people like ketamine's not the magic bullet. You know, we didn't go into head injuries, but if you've got unresolved head injuries, you know what? I don't see the results as good. You've got to treat everything that makes up you as a human being. Um, and that's where we talked earlier about friends and everything else where all of that matters and it's gotta be bringing you to the same destination. Awesome. I'll put that link in the description of this podcast episode. And I believe they can find you on social media as well, right? You 
what is where are you at on social media? Yeah, so for any of the social media, it's at Dr. S. Zimmerman, Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N. That's going to be for Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Um, I'm on all of those. Awesome. I'll put that also in the description as well. You can check out his content there as well. He has some reels he does about ketamine. And feel free to reach out to him or me with more questions about this. If you like this episode, share it with your friends. Yeah. The more we get this out, I think more people can learn how to get results in their life, how to feel more like themselves again, and to find joy in the process. Thank you for listening today. And we'll talk next week. Ken loves to get feedback from his audience. Send him a private message or write a review so that he can discuss topics that are most relevant to your spiritual experience. Thank you for listening today and remember to join next week.